Section 3 of An Explorer in the Air Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, July 2012. An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham. Chapter 3 War Fever in Washington. On my return to Washington on May 13th, the city looked more warlike, for in the meantime orders had been issued that all officers on active duty should wear service uniforms. At the same time this brought out an amusing feature of our unpreparedness which was particularly striking to one who had just been associating with the appropriately uniformed officers of the Royal Flying Corps. They wore wings, but none of them wore spurs. While at Washington the officers in the aviation section of the Signal Corps wore spurs, but did not wear wings. About six months later our military aviators were authorized by the general staff to wear wings, but when wearing boots were still obliged to wear spurs. Six months later the War College, after we had been at war for a year, woke up to the ridiculous side of forcing aviators to wear spurs, when obviously from their wings they used airplanes and not horses and issued a new regulation that aviators, when wearing boots, would not wear spurs. This was permitted, however, only as long as we were actively engaged in war, and in the following December the rule was changed back again, so that when I returned from France in January 1919, I received a similar shock to this one after my first visit to Toronto, and found the unfortunate aviator once more compelled to wear spurs when wearing boots. It would be interesting to delve into the inner consciousness of the dear old boys down in the sancta sanctorum of the war college. It is a queer sense of humor that requires a field officer, who in the course of his duties suddenly is called upon to mount his winged steed, to divest himself of his spurs and put them in his pocket for safety. I speak the more feelingly on this matter because of one Sunday afternoon at Potomac Park, when I was invited unexpectedly to fly with Colonel Lee of the Royal Flying Corps, and had to listen to the laughter of the crowd while I took off my spurs. It would not have been so bad had I not been wearing wings at the same time. However, we were not the only branch or the only army to suffer from archaic uniform regulations. A post-bellum issue of Punch, portrays the embarrassment of a natty young railroad transportation officer, smartly clad in very horsey regalia, roughly accosted by an infantry colonel, just returned at the head of a victorious regiment, who inquired whether the engines were feeling frisky this morning. On the other hand, the courtesy of the regular officers of the permanent establishment to the newly appointed reserve officers during the early months of the war, when we were all so green, made so many mistakes, and had so much to learn of army procedure, was particularly noticeable. It was very pleasant, and gave one a feeling of being part of a cordial family organization, to have the older, regular officers meet a stranger on the street with their hearty good morning when one appeared in uniform. This gracious recognition of the old army, however, soon died out as Washington became swamped by the inrush of several thousand reserve officers who had not been accustomed to bowing to a stranger merely because he wore the uniform of the United States Army. As we look back from this distance and have in mind the enormous structures which were built in Washington in 1918 to meet the requirements of the War Department, 
it is amazing to note the inadequate preparations and the small vision of the requirements that prevailed in May and June 1917. Previous to our entry into the war, the War Department apparently had made no plans as to what it would do in case we were suddenly called upon to become one of the great military nations in the world. When the war, that is, our part in it, began, the Adjutant General's office, as I was told by one of the best-informed members of the General Staff, was receiving about 3,000 communications a day, and these were being handled by six or eight officers and an adequate force of trained clerks. Foreseeing in some degree that an additional force would be required, the number of officers and clerks was merely doubled after we entered the war. On the particular day on which I made my inquiries as to why a certain communication had received no attention for nearly two weeks, I was informed that the incoming mail that morning at the Adjutant General's office consisted of over 40,000 pieces, or about 13 times as much as at the beginning of the war, while the office force was still only twice as large. Of course this was altered later, but it seemed to me at the time an adequate explanation of the reason why my own communication had not been answered more promptly. During the month of May and part of June, my office, as Director of the United States Schools of Military Aeronautics, consisted of a desk in a small room, where, besides myself and two assistants, there was also located the desk of Captain, later Colonel, Aubrey Lippincott, who was in charge of the personnel division of the air service two other officers who were in charge of the personnel of the signal corps proper and mr w m redding whose sixteen years of service as one of the principal clerks in the office of the chief signal officer made him an indispensable source of information as regards procedure and many other details from this small room then for several weeks went out practically all of the correspondence covering the personnel of the signal corps as well as that of the air service, in addition to that concerned with the ground schools. But that was not all, for here, between the hours of ten in the morning and four in the afternoon, we were subjected to a stream of callers, who wanted important information on every conceivable subject. In June we moved over to the Mills Building, where the Schools Division had at least one room, but this was speedily filled up with the desks of assistants, clerks, and stenographers, until there was scarcely a chair for our importunate callers. It may be interesting to know that within six months of the time when we were all huddled together in that little room on the fourth floor of the State, War, and Navy Building, the Air Personnel Division had begun to use the services of fifty officers and two hundred and fifty clerks, while the Schools of Military Aeronautics Division required the services of a dozen officers and forty clerks. Our growth was attended by many difficulties and numerous moves. Each move caused loss of time, misplacement of papers, and delays which were disappointing, and were often misunderstood by our friends and correspondents. As a matter of fact, the school's division moved five times in about as many months. These were feverish days of living from hand to mouth. One never knew from week to week what new conditions would have to be met, either physically or mentally. One of my first tasks was to have copies made of the lectures used by the Royal Flying Corps at Toronto, and send these copies out to our new schools as fast as possible. There were practically no stenographers available for this purpose, but fortunately I was able to have the original lectures photostated and sent out in this form. While in the throes of trying to do a dozen things at once, so as to give the greatest possible amount of assistance to the universities that were struggling with their new problems, I was suddenly presented with a highly trained and most enthusiastic assistant, Frank C. Page. 
General Squire had known him at the embassy in London, and gave him a commission as captain, which was later increased to that of major. What I should have done without Major Page during the next few months is difficult to imagine. His knowledge of aeronautics as well as his editorial ability and his acquaintance with the ways of the War Department enabled him to start right in, on the day the General asked him to become my assistant, and without a moment's hesitation to become immensely helpful. General Squire, while wisely avoiding the tyranny of details, and refusing to become discouraged by, or interested in, the difficulties which he believed should be solved by his subordinates, had a most remarkable way of gathering in useful people to help the air program. He was quick to realize that, notwithstanding a lamentable lack of former military training, editors, college professors, secretaries of learned societies, former national tennis champions, managers of large business enterprises, distinguished engineers, and former police commissioners, all had something of value in their makeup, as attested by their past history, which would justify the air service in giving them commissions and securing their services. He knew they would make mistakes. His year and a half on the Western Front had taught him, however, what, unfortunately, many of the older staff officers found it difficult to learn before the armistice was signed, that this war, unlike any which had preceded it, could use to the fullest extent men who had succeeded in the civilian world's occupations, even though they knew nothing of army regulations or of infantry drill. He did not expect them to develop into active commanders on the Western Front, he repeatedly said that in the course of a few months all the regular officers of the permanent establishment would be needed on the firing line in france but he did expect that the important positions in the war department at home would be filled by near civilians and to give them the rank necessary for the places they were to fill did not worry him in the least even though they had never served an eight years apprenticeship as second lieutenants in the line and could not do squads right Furthermore, General Squire saw clearly the tremendous possibilities of the air service. His prophetic vision, rising above the practical difficulties and annoying details connected with such mushroom growth, soared away into space like a veritable comet. Every time I had the opportunity of a long conversation with my chief, I came away filled with a new inspiration and a clearer idea of the gigantic task that lay ahead of us. Even in little things he saw more distinctly than any of us the requirements of our coming expansion. At a time when it seemed to me that two or three office assistants and half a dozen stenographers would be all that I should need, he waved the idea aside with the remark, you must get ready to have at least a dozen officers and fifty clerks, and his vision was correct. It needed just about that many to handle the correspondence and the details of running the schools of military aeronautics after they finally got going under full steam. I think General Squire expected more of us than we could possibly perform. He had seen what miracles were being done in England and France, and he had the greatest optimism regarding American youth. Our chief followed the principle of giving his subordinates the widest possible authority and permitting them to make decisions of the greatest importance. Seldom did he deny our requests. Our opportunity was tremendous, and our responsibilities increased from day to day, but we always felt that we had General Squire behind us. His optimism was contagious, and his belief in the great future of the American pilot spurred us on to work at high speed early and late. Holidays were welcome because they meant a freedom from callers and the opportunity to accomplish more constructive work than on ordinary weekdays. The universities cooperated to the utmost of their ability, 
and showed unusual patience with the frequent changes of plan and curriculum that were necessitated by military exigency. Just as we would get comfortably settled in one course of study, word would come by cable from General Pershing, urging that more stress be laid on something else. The truth was that the general staff knew practically nothing about military aeronautics. Neither then, nor for many months afterwards, was there a single general staff officer in Washington who had attended a flying school or who understood through practical experience the needs of a school of military aeronautics. We had to work out our own salvation and keep going at the same time. Fortunately, we had the constant aid and assistance, during these difficult first six months, of Colonel L. W. B. Reese, of the Royal Flying Corps, who had been decorated for his extraordinary courage in attacking single-handed ten German planes. Colonel Reese had been used in England as an instructor, so his advice was particularly valuable. We learned to turn to him on all doubtful questions. That we did not make more mistakes was due chiefly to his long experience and good judgment. On my first tour of inspection of the cadets in the ground schools, I had the good fortune to be accompanied by Colonel Reese, and to witness the enthusiasm which his presence aroused among the cadets, and the eagerness with which the members of the various faculties plied him with questions both before and after his lecture. Merely to get a glimpse of him as he limped across the campus, and to realize what he had done was enough to increase appreciably the zeal of the cadets. He was in charge of a squadron at the front, just before the Psalm offensive. Annoyed, as he whimsically relates, by the continual ringing of the telephone and the repeated asking of unnecessary questions by junior officers at headquarters, he decided to take a patrol himself. At that time it appears to have been the custom for single machines to make patrols. Later, patrols were taken by flights or entire squadrons. While in his solitary patrol he saw a squadron of ten German machines headed for France. As I remember the story, they were two-seaters and probably constituted a day-bombing squadron. With almost unparalleled daring he attacked the squadron, broke it up, sent down at least three if not four of the enemy aircraft in flames, and had the satisfaction of seeing the others hurry homeward in a demoralized state. During the latter part of the engagement, he was suffering from the effects of a machine-gun bullet, which entered his thigh and lodged near his right knee. This did not prevent him, however, from completing his victory by demolishing his last opponent and flying safely home to his own airdrome. He spent the next six months in the hospital, but eventually had the satisfaction of having the V.C. pinned on his coat by the king himself. It was only with the very greatest difficulty that one could get Colonel Reese to speak of his great flight, even in private. His lectures were confined to a discussion of recent developments in aerial tactics and amusing stories of mistakes that had been made by British pilots, due in some cases to inability to read maps, and in others to disobedience of specific instructions. His readiness to help us on the minutest details was particularly appreciated by Lieutenant John C. Farrar, whose duty it was to collect for the use of the schools all the latest information regarding military aeronautics. Lieutenant Farrar's keen enthusiasm for his work enabled him to unearth much that was of the greatest value both in Washington and Toronto, and later in France. We continually received the very latest confidential information prepared by the Royal Flying Corps. Its use in the courses at the ground schools was of great psychological value. It raised the morale of the cadets and made them take pride and interest in the course of instruction. Unfortunately, it could not help them to get to the front any sooner.
End of section 3